Good morning, everyone. So, so good to be here with you this morning. Happy 4th of July weekend to all of you. If you're here from out of town, maybe first time ever, welcome. My name's Christian. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're grateful that you are here. For those of you who are watching us from your vacation spot on July 4th weekend, thank you for spending an hour of your July 4th holiday with us. For those of you who are watching at home, because you got home too late from the Kenny Chesney concert at Arrowhead last night, and you couldn't make it up, we're still glad that you joined us online. And for those of you who stayed home from the Kenny Chesney concert, just so you could be at church, like, thank you. Just as a survey, how many of you actually did that? That's exactly what I thought. So there, you need to know, for those of you online, no one stayed home from the Kenny Chesney concert just so they could be at church today. But we are like super glad that everybody is here today. Matthew 15 is where we're going to hang out in our Bible study time today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew 15. If you don't have a Bible but have a smartphone, you can get on that Bible app and follow along that way. If you're like so new to church and maybe things of Christianity that you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We plan for you to be here. We're glad you're here. Everything I read from Scripture will be on the screen, so it'll be super easy for you to follow along. I don't think you'll feel lost. And at the end of the service, if we can help you get a Bible, just go to the Connection Center right outside the door, and we would love to put one in your hand. If you've got a smartphone, you can download our Journey Church International app. All the notes in the bulletin will be on your handheld device, and you can save them email them to yourself at the end. But Matthew chapter 15 is where we're going to study. Before we do that, I want to pause and reflect for just a moment as the lead pastor of our church um, on what happened Friday, June 24th with the Supreme Court of the United States uh, overturning a statute that for nearly 50 years had uh, given um, constitutional, um, basically constitutional protection to anyone who wanted to receive an abortion, and the Supreme Court saying, um, we're not going to decide that anymore. We're going to send that back to the states and let them decide what to do with abortion. Uh, immediately, four states had laws go into effect that prohibited abortion, and, and they think over the next year that about 20 more states will join that cause where they prohibit abortion completely. That means that most of America uh, will still be able to get an abortion, um, I believe the majority of America will live in a place where it's still legal to get an abortion. Um, but for Bible-believing Christians, Orthodox Christians like me, who believe that Scripture teaches that life begins at conception and believe that the Bible teaches that a life in the womb has dignity and should be uh, given the sanctity of life, for those of us in that camp, I think the last 10 days or so has given us tremendous hope that millions, potentially over the next several decades, millions of babies that may have been aborted will now be born. And for nearly 50 years, um, people of faith, beginning with the Roman Catholic Church in the early 1970s, and then eventually the Orthodox Church and the Evangelical Church caught on in the late 70s, began to speak on behalf of the unborn who could not speak on their own. Because that's what Christians do. Christians speak up for vulnerable populations who cannot speak for themselves. In Proverbs 22, 23, and 24, we are given 30 sayings of wise people. And the 25th of those sayings is in Proverbs 24, verses 11 and 12. And the author of Proverbs says this to wise people who are followers of God. He says, rescue those being led away to death 
and hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, we didn't know anything about it, does not God who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not the one who guards your life know whether or not you're guarding anyone else's life? I think for Christians who look at Roe versus Wade, and they look at Proverbs 24, 11, together, I think they would say, hopefully, that the movement that has been created over the last 50 years by people praying, by people giving, by people advocating, by people voting, I think we would say, hopefully, we have been a voice for those who cannot speak for themselves, a voice for the unborn, and hopefully over the next decades, millions of people will have a chance at life who did not have a chance at life because we sought to rescue those who were headed towards death. My prayer is that that, that's what will happen in our country. However, I am not a politician, and I am not called to make policy. I'm a pastor, and I am called to love and disciple people to love and disciple the world. And you need to know, when I look at abortion, I don't see politics, I see people. Because every abortion story that I have been invited into always involves at a minimum three people, an unborn child, the mother carrying that child, and usually a biological father somewhere on the scene. And statistics tell us this. One out of every four women under the age of 40 has had an abortion. And 40% of those attend church regularly. Which means as a body of Christian believers, for us to talk about politics without seeing people, I think might miss the heart of Jesus. And what we're going to have over the next several decades in our country is a group of unborn being born to people who are unprepared. A, a, group of un, uh, a, a former group of unborn being born to people who are um, unable to take care of them well. There will still be the unborn who are born to those who don't want them and don't love them. And we know that most of those will disproportionately come in low-income areas of our city, which means as Christians, we must now step up our efforts not only to see the unborn, but to see the now-born who need our help, and to see their mothers, and to see their fathers, and to see their families, and to engage. I think when Christians look at what has happened, that we should not be gloating. I think we should be gracious, and I think we should get engaged. Because this is not the time to take a victory lap. This is time to start our race of ministry. And for those of you, and yes, you should put your hands together for that. And for those of you who are passionate about this, to have been posting the last 10 days on social media... My challenge to you would be the challenge that the Apostle John gave the church in 1 John 3, 18, where he said, let's not love in words and speech only. Let's not just talk about it. Let's love with our actions and with our truth. Inside every bulletin that was handed out today is a list of what our church has already been doing before this decision to minister to the foster families and children of our city and adoptive families and children in our city as well as what we've been doing to walk alongside mothers who cannot and will not be able to have their babies unless somebody helps them. You need to know this is what we've been doing before the Supreme Court made their decision. And if they change their mind, this is what we will continue doing. Because we've not been called to make policy. We've been called to love people and to love people well. So for those of you here, let me put it another way. As I watched the last 10 days, 
Christians celebrate what had happened. And I saw post after post after post after post after post after post. The thought in my heart that came from hope was this. If everyone who is posting something will get involved in foster care, adoptive care, or caring for moms, we'll be all right. But if they're all just talking and not doing anything, we might be in trouble. So this is inside your bulletin today. We'd love for you to help in this area. For those of you who are watching online, you can get this form by texting JOURNEY to 474747. This form will pop up. As I, between services, talk to some of the mothers in our congregation who had abortions in their past, some of the families in our congregation who had abortions in their past before they became followers of Jesus and said, what did I miss and what can I say better? They said, Christian, the vast majority of people at Journey who have probably undergone an abortion still haven't told anyone. So let them know that this is a safe place. And let them know that today we're a place that will care. Tomorrow we'll be a place that will pray and we'll walk with them in grace. So that's not on this card. But if you are someone who just needs some spiritual care to have a spiritual conversation, a mom or a dad, would you please let us know? It would be our tremendous honor to walk alongside you as you walk through this. And as a church, our race is not over. Our race is just beginning to now come alongside not just the unborn, but their moms and their dads and to say, we got you, we're with you, we'll help you. Amen? So make sure you turn these in after the service and let's make a big impact in our community in this area. Can we pray before we jump into our Bible study time today? you take a deep breath and just kind of settle your soul into this moment? God, we pray really specifically for this area, Lord, that has been so kind of out front the last 10 days of our world. Thank you, Lord, for those who over the last 50 years have tirelessly prayed and given and advocated and worked to create change that might speak for the unborn and bring life. And Lord, now that positive change is being made in that direction, God, we pray for mothers, very specifically and disproportionately those in low-income and marginalized areas who will suffer the most through this and their children. God, as a church, let us see people, not just policy. And God, let us get engaged with our hands, not just typing on a computer, but in helping carry the burden that you've shared with the church of loving people well in this area. Thank you for allowing those who may have been headed to death to be rescued. And God, let us be people that don't just love with our words, but we get involved with our hands so we can make the difference you've called us to. That's our prayer. And Jesus, we ask it today in your name. And everyone said, amen. amen. All right, Matthew chapter 15, jumping into week five of a series called Kingdom Citizens. We're trying to look at people in the Bible and learn from their faith story so that our faith walk can be stronger. We're on week five. The first four have taught us this. They've taught us that kingdom citizens live with courage and conviction. We learned that from John the Baptist. They've taught us that kingdom citizens live with compassion that moves us to generosity. We feel stuff that makes us do stuff. We learned that to the disciples when, through the disciples when Jesus fed 5,000 people. We learned that kingdom citizens have big faith. They get out of the boat. But they need long faith. They need to not quit when things get hard. They need to keep, keep walking. We learned that from Simon Peter. And last week with Pastor Mike, we learned as we looked at the Pharisees that kingdom citizens are people who very sincerely put all of their beliefs and their hopes on Jesus, not religious tradition. Those are the first four things we've learned. I hope as you look at that list, you've already got one or two that you're working on, that you're thinking, you know, the last month, 
That's the area I need to grow as a kingdom citizen. Or maybe today is going to be the new area. Kingdom citizen number five is going to be a Canaanite woman that we're going to meet in Matthew chapter 15. And she's going to teach us some really good theology when it comes to just biblical history about the plan of redemption. She's also going to show us what it looks like to become a person who is redeemed. So Matthew 15 is where we're going to hang out. We're going to start in verse 21 and go through verse 28. And here's what we read. Leaving that place. If you have a pen or a highlighter, you might circle the words that place. And you might just jot up in your notes, that is the town of Capernaum. If you're struggling to spell that in the Hebrew, it's Kafir, which means town or village of. And Nahum, the prophet Nahum, Capernaum was probably the town where Nahum was from. Kafir, Nahum, Capernaum. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus didn't answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she's bothering us. She keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Now, for those of you who may be new to Christianity, new to church, or maybe just new to scripture, you have to, when you read these eight verses, ask what I think is an interesting question. Because you can't get to the end of those eight verses without asking this question. Like, are we meeting hard-hearted Jesus for the first time? Or is Matthew trying to accomplish something different here? Because where have we met a Jesus who has ignored people? Where have we met a Jesus who has said no to people? Where have we met a Jesus who has called someone a dog? Like, what is going on in this text? Are we meeting for the first time hard-hearted Jesus? Or is Matthew trying to teach us something more profound that we're not even aware of? Now, this interesting question is a rhetorical question. Because for those of us who do know who Jesus is, we would say, no, Jesus is not hard-hearted. And those of us who understand a little bit of the Bible will understand what I would call the master plan of salvation from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Revelation 22. We, we would understand what God is doing through Scripture, so we would understand what Matthew is doing. But if you're here today and you don't quite understand why Jesus is doing what he's doing and what Matthew's trying to accomplish, we'll start with some theology and then we'll get real practical into what it looks like to follow Jesus. So let's start with number one, what I would just call the plan of redemption. Because if you are not familiar with the master plan of Scripture, if you are not familiar with the master message of Scripture, if you're not familiar with the highlights of Scripture, you need to know about the master plan of redemption. Look at verse 21, because Matthew is indeed taking us on a profound spiritual journey. It says, leaving that place... Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, when we read that verse, it sounds like Jesus has maybe gone across the street or to a friend's neighborhood across town. But for those of you who know the geography of the Middle East well enough to see the picture in your head, you read that verse and think, that journey probably took at least a week, if not more. For those of you who have not memorized the geography of the Middle East, let me show it to you on a map. Because this verse means something, and it means something theologically. 
If you look underneath the two E's in the word Galilee, you'll see the, the, the village of Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Anytime you're looking at a map of Israel, you can always tell where the Sea of Galilee is because it's that upside-down teardrop near northern Israel. If you were to head to the farthest northwestern word on the map, you will see the word Tyre. And if we were to head about 50 miles north of that, you would see the word Sidon. You need to know that it's modern-day Lebanon. And here's what's happening in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus has just told the religious leaders of Israel, you are not spiritual leaders of Israel. You are not connected to God. You are going to be rejected spiritually. Remember last week, Pastor Mike told us how the disciples came to Jesus. They were like, did you know that you offended all those people? And Jesus was like, I don't care. It's true. The spiritual leaders have been uh, rejected spiritually. But then Jesus not only leaves Capernaum, he leaves the country. He leaves Israel. So we're in a text here where Jesus has just told the spiritual leaders of Israel, you are rejected. And now he has left the country altogether. And if we are a Jewish reader 2,000 years ago, Matthew wrote his gospel to help Jewish people understand Jesus is the Messiah. We are now in this chapter thinking, wait a minute. Are we rejected? Because he's just rejected our temple system. He's just rejected our spiritual leaders. And now he has left the country. You're beginning to freak out a little bit if you're a Jew 2,000 years ago thinking, has God's plan of redemption changed and are we not involved in it anymore now for us to be brought into that heart conversation they were having we have to understand what the master plan of redemption is and here's God's plan of redemption it was to restore the broken relationship that happened between God and humanity because of sin through a savior that God would send to the world this is the theme of the entire bible that God has been trying to work to restore a broken relationship between him and humanity through a savior that he would send to the world. This is how the Bible starts. If you have a Bible and you want to turn with me, you can go back to Genesis chapter 3. It's so early in the Bible, it's going to be like page 4 in my Bible. This is the first time we see God, after he creates perfect humanity, that then sins and rebels against him, tell humanity, all right, my plan now is to put this thing back together. In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in them in seven days. In Genesis chapter 2, same story, a little more detail. Genesis chapter 3, we see life in the Garden of Eden. Satan comes along, tempts Adam and Eve to rebel against God. They do. Their relationship is broken. And God shows back up and says, I'm going to put it back together. Genesis 3.15 in Latin is known as the Proto-Evangelium. You say, what does that mean? It's a word that translates the first gospel. It is the first time in the Bible that the good news was shared that God was going to fix what was broken. And here's what it says in Genesis 3.15. God speaking to Satan says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In Genesis 3, God, Satan showed up and destroyed what God had created. Perfect relationship between him and humanity. So God counters, Satan destroys what God created, so God says, I'm going to defeat what you've, what you've corrupted. Someone's going to be born of a woman who you're going to bruise deeply, but he's going to crush your head. He's going to eliminate evil. So Satan shows up, destroys what God created, God counters and says, I will end up defeating what you have corrupted. Here's going to be my plan. Someone's going to come who's going to reconnect the whole world to me. We see a little picture of it in a man named Noah, three chapters later in Genesis 6. 
God's like, here's how it's going to work in small scale. He's going to take a man and say, you are going to be responsible to save your family. And this man's family will get on the ark. And we'll see a little bit of what it looks like for a man to be a savior of a family. And then just a few more chapters later, we'll meet a man named Abram. And God will say, this is the guy, you and your family, you're going to bring the whole world back to me. If you're still kind of flipping through your Bible, Genesis chapter 12 reads this way. As God says, here's how I'm going to put the world back together. He says in Genesis 12, 2, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless you. And then he says in verse 3, all the peoples on earth are going to be blessed through you. So God's plan of redemption is to restore what was broken. And the first phase of that, according to Genesis chapter 12, is God is going to choose the nation of Israel to basically show the world who the God of Israel is and tell the world that a Savior is coming from this nation. Somebody say show and tell. Okay, let me say what I meant to say. Everybody say show and tell. All right, now I know you're with me. Like this this is phase one of God's, God's master plan. Restore the world and their broken relationship with me. Phase one. I'm going to choose a nation, Genesis 12 too. I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to bless you. You're going to bless all the peoples on earth. I'm going to choose a nation to show the world the God of Israel. And you're going to tell the world that a Savior is coming from Israel. Phase one of the plan. It had lasted 1,400 years from the time of writing that Moses wrote it down in Exodus chapter 19 to the time of Jesus in Matthew chapter 15. Here's the plan. In Exodus chapter 19, God has not even given his people Israel their Ten Commandments. And he tells them, here's my purpose for you. If you have your Bibles, again, you might flip over to Exodus chapter 19, just a few pages to the right. We'll keep working our way back to Matthew chapter 15. God hasn't even given his people the Ten Commandments, but he says, I'm going to tell you how to live because here's your purpose. He says in Exodus 19.5, now if you obey me fully and you keep my covenant... Then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Circle the word possession. God's like, I could choose any nation on earth, but I've chosen the nation of Israel. Although the whole earth is mine, you are going to be for me a kingdom of priests. Circle the word priest. And you're going to be a holy nation. Circle the word holy. Priests are people who represent God before a group of people. God says, I could choose anybody or anything to do this, but I'm going to choose a nation of Israel. And you are going to be people who represent me to the entire world. And you're going to be holy. It means set apart. It means I'm going to purposely take you and I'm going to make you different so you can show the world what it looks like to live in relationship with God. Phase one, the nation of Israel is going to show the world the God of Israel. And they're going to tell people about the Savior of the world coming from Israel. This had lasted 1,400 years, but it was not going well. And in the first part of Matthew chapter 15, Jesus told the religious leaders who had been tasked in Exodus chapter 19 and in Genesis chapter 12 with carrying that vision, you're not doing this very well. And we would see phase two begin with Matthew chapter 15 and then carry through the New Testament. Phase one, the nation of Israel is going to do it. Phase two, the church of Jesus is going to do it. Phase two of God's plan of redemption, restore the world to him through a savior. Phase one, the nation of Israel is going to do it. They, they did it for about 1,400 years. Phase two, now the church of Jesus is going to show the world who the God of the universe is. And the church of Jesus is going to introduce the world to a Savior named Jesus. The church of Jesus began as a Jewish church. Thousands and thousands of Jewish Christians in Acts chapter 1 and 2. But eventually, the spiritual leaders of Israel would reject Christianity. 
And the church of Jesus would become a Gentile church, mainly non-Jewish people whose role it was to exist, to show the world who the God of the universe was and introduce them to a Savior named Jesus. Somebody say show and tell. Like that's our mission. That's our mission. I don't want you to turn there because you might get lost in the process, but I want you, as you look at Exodus chapter 19, listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, 9, because God told the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 19, you're going to be my treasured possession, holy nation. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. Listen to what Peter said the church would be, the church of Jesus in 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. There's that word. You're the people who stand between God and humanity. A holy nation, there's that word. I'm going to make you different so people can see who I am. God's special possession, there's that word possession. You're going to belong to God. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So we go back to the original question. It's a good question. Are we being introduced to hard-hearted Jesus? Or is God doing, or is Matthew teaching us something much more profound in Matthew chapter 15? And the answer is option B. Both Jesus and Matthew are teaching us something very, very profound about God's plan of redemption and, and what was getting ready to happen. I would say that Jesus was not, not only not being offensive, he was actually teaching us the primary, very good theology of the New Testament. When Jesus didn't respond to this lady, and then he responded by saying, Israel has to come first, I don't think Jesus was meaning to be offensive. I think Jesus, and as Matthew presented it, was teaching really good theology about what was getting ready to happen. Because in probably the greatest theological treatise of the New Testament, the book of Romans, Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, opens Romans chapter 1, getting ready to tell the world how Christianity works by saying this in Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew... And then for the Gentile, this was the plan of redemption, that God would use a nation to reach the world. But when that Savior came, it would be open for the world to reach the world. And we are right now, real time in Matthew chapter 15, kind of teetering on that shift. Because the Jews in Matthew chapter 15 have rejected Jesus and said, we're not going to do it your way. And the Canaanite Gentiles have accepted Jesus and said, we will do it your way. So we're kind of living right in the middle. So look at the conversation. The Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and says, please help me. And Jesus said, I've been called to Israel first. And look what she says to Jesus. I've been called to Israel first. She says theologically what I think the people of Israel missed. She basically says, yeah, but the people of Israel haven't been doing their job. Jesus, help me. He said, I've come to the people of Israel. Somehow she understands theology better than they do because she said, I don't need the whole loaf of bread, but didn't you give the Israelites the bread so they'd pass the crumbs on to the rest of us? Didn't you leverage them to tell us? Like, I get what you're saying, that they've not been doing their job. So, like, can you help me without them? And we see in Matthew chapter 15 what I believe is the shift. Literally, we see the shift in Matthew 15 between phase one of God's plan for redemption and phase two of God's plan for redemption. And Matthew wants us to see it through the lens of Jewish Christians, the Jewish leaders who've rejected Jesus, but Jesus who has not rejected the world, who says, yeah, I'll give you the crumbs directly because they have not done that. Look at Matthew 15, 27. It's really a powerful statement. 
26, he said, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. She said, yes, it is, Lord. Because even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Even the dogs get some of the crumbs. His actions here signal the shift. Phase one, Israel was supposed to share their bread. They didn't. Is becoming phase two, the church of Jesus Christ is going to be carried by people who have met and personally connected with Jesus in a powerful way. What's so cool about Matthew chapter 15 is not only it is, is it this massive theological shift in God's plan of redemption, but for us it introduces us to a person whose faith is really attractive and who I think we can learn a lot about salvation from. So if point number one was like the plan of redemption, point number two would be like people who are redeemed. Like what is a person who is redeemed? What is a person who's been born again? What is a person who is a Jesus follower look like? What's their DNA look like? Because we want to be people who follow Jesus. Look at verses 25 through 28. The woman came and knelt before Jesus. After he ignored her once and told his disciples, yeah, I'm not called to her. The woman came and knelt before Jesus. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that very moment. So I think this Canaanite woman shows us a picture of what the heart of people who have been redeemed look like. And I think she gives us three very powerful glimpses. The first is she shows us that she was hopeless in her state. She comes to Jesus, and if we look closely at verse 25, it says she knelt before him. You might circle the word knelt. And she begged him, Lord, help me. Please see this picture. This woman is on her knees in front of Jesus saying, please help me. I cannot help myself, and no one else can help me. Please help me. You need to understand that hopelessness is actually the first step towards drawing close to Jesus. Because only when we realize that we cannot save ourselves will we even be in the market of trying to find someone who can save us. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul would say, literally this being hopeless in your state, spiritual hopelessness is the key to finding salvation. In Romans chapter 3, Paul was writing what many call the constitution of Christianity. In Romans 1, 2, and 3, he's speaking very specifically to Jewish people who think we don't need a Savior because we're pretty good on our own. And he's like, no, you do need a Savior. You're not good enough on your own. And he says in Romans 3, 10 through 18, there's no one righteous. The word righteous means right with God. There's nobody right with God on their own. Not even one person. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they don't know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In theology, this text of scripture is called complete or total depravity. Paul is literally saying, there is nothing good inside you without Jesus. Without Jesus, your mind's always thinking the wrong thing. Without Jesus, your mouth is always saying the wrong thing. Without Jesus, your hands are always doing the wrong thing. Without Jesus, your feet are always walking in the wrong direction. Without Jesus, your life is always making a mess. 
Without Jesus, there's nothing good in you. But when you get to that point of hopelessness, inside of me there is nothing good. Paul said you are almost ready to be saved because you've stopped looking in your own heart and you've started looking towards a Savior. She was hopeless, which meant she was in a perfect position to meet Jesus. She was hopeless in her state, but she was humble in her spirit. And her soul was going to look the exact opposite of the Pharisees that we met last week. So look at verses 26 and 27. Kind of hard verses to swallow when we think about Jesus the way we think about him. She's like, Lord, help me. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Because even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I don't know that I've ever met somebody so spiritually humble in all of my life. Let me ask you this question. How would you respond if Jesus told you you were a dog spiritually? How would you respond if Jesus said, there's nothing good in you. You're a dog spiritually. In the first part of Matthew chapter 15, Jesus told the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, your righteousness is not good enough to get to God. And they said, we disagree, forget you. Later in Matthew 15, a woman comes and says, help me. And Jesus said, you're a spiritual dog. By the way, if you study the ancient Jewish writing, they would refer to people outside the kingdom of God as dogs, like strays. Just kind of anyone who wasn't Jewish. She said, Jesus, help me. And he said, you're a spiritual dog. And her response was, I know. But even the dogs get crumbs. Look at the humility. How would you respond when Jesus looks at you and says, there's nothing good enough in you for God? Would you say, that's offensive? Or would you say, I know. And that's why I need Jesus. See, we live in a world a little bit in American Christianity where we want to add Jesus to what we are because we believe we're like a 6 out of a 10, but to become a 10 out of a 10, like we need Jesus. So like, he can take us from where we are and help us finish the race. But the reality is without Jesus, we're a 0 out of 10. We're dogs. But the woman says... Listen, I'm like, yes, yes, I am a dog spiritually. By all of your standards, I am outside the kingdom of God. That's why I need your help. And Jesus is like, that is, that is amazing faith. The humility that she has to realize I'm outside the kingdom of God without Jesus. So the little he can give me is better than the lot that I can have without him. That's amazing faith. In 1 John 1, 9, John teaches the Christian church that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But right before that, he'll say in 1 John 1, 8, but if you claim that you don't have any sin, there's no hope for you. If you claim you don't need Jesus, if you claim you're not a dog, if you claim, if you claim you're righteous enough on your own, if you claim that you're a pretty good guy apart from Jesus or a pretty good girl, like if you claim there's a bunch of good in you, but maybe Jesus can supercharge it, Probably not going to get there. But when you become hopeless, and when you become humble, and you're introduced to Jesus, you become hopeful in the Savior. Hopeless in her state. I can't help myself. Humble in her spirit. Yes, I'm outside the kingdom of God, but hopeful in the Savior. Look at verse 22. This is a powerful statement from a Gentile woman 2,000 years ago. 
A Canaanite woman came from the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon and cried out, Lord, son of David, circle the word son of David, have mercy, circle the word mercy, on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. This Canaanite woman used two phrases that really only the people of Israel would use. The title son of David was a Jewish title for the coming Messiah, the coming Savior that would come. And the word mercy is one of the most found words in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. It literally means undeserved favor. It means to have somebody treat you the way you need to be treated, not the way you deserve to be treated. And this Canaanite woman who is not Jewish, and I can't imagine how she would have even become learned in the Jewish scripture. Somewhere has had some trickle down of the mission where she realized a savior was coming from Israel who could save her. Somehow she has found him. She's fallen at his feet. She's called him what he is, the promised savior of the world. And she's asked for what only he has promised to give mercy. On her knees, she said, please do not treat me the way I deserve to be treated. Please treat me the way I need to be treated. Please show me your mercy. And Jesus said, woman, that is unbelievable faith. You see, she came to Jesus and basically said, I'm coming to you because I believe you are a great master, not because I believe I'm a good servant. But if you will be a great and merciful savior, master, to me, whatever you have for me, is enough. This is the DNA of someone who's really redeemed. Given up on trying to do it your own, hopeless if it's all on us. Humble. We're sinners. Yes. It's not even offensive. It's true. We're sinners. And that allows us to meet a Savior who's merciful. He treats us the way we need to be treated, not the way we deserve to be treated, because He's great. And he's God. And when we like put it all together and try to summarize it, we would say kingdom profile number five looks like this. Kingdom citizens, they live with a spiritual hopelessness in their own state, but this tremendous spiritual hope in their Savior. Kingdom citizens are always looking at themselves saying, without Jesus, there's nothing good in me. But with Jesus... I can be connected to God, not because I'm a good servant or even an okay servant, but because he is a great master spiritually. Last week, I had the opportunity to preach in Northwest Atlanta at a church called Westridge Church. In January of 2011, when we were praying about starting a church, Westridge Church and Pastor Brian Beloy and his wife, Amy, came alongside Danielle and I and a group of about five families. They said, we're going to help you because we believe in you. And they were so gracious. They gave us money. They gave us time. They gave us mentorship and coaching. They really became Danielle and I's spiritual parents. And their church became kind of our parent church that helped us plant. They've done that with about 100 churches over the last 25 years. And this summer, Pastor Brian is on sabbatical. So he invited 12 of his church planners to come back and speak to Westridge just to say, here's the type of thing, like when you give in the offering, here's the type of thing we're doing in Kansas City. Brian's son, Zach, serves on our student ministry team. He got married on Saturday, so it was a nice two-for-one to go down and be a part of his wedding on Saturday and stay over and preach on Sunday. And I got to preach on Ehud, one of my favorite 
Old Testament stories. I got to pick any story in the Old Testament I wanted to, to preach from. So I preached on this left-handed assassin named Ehud. And I told the people, basically, Ehud's spiritual stories. God has designed every one of you with spiritual ability, purpose. He's placed you where he wants you so you can serve in the mission of God. And because of Jesus, you can do it. At the end of the second of their three services, I was standing down front. And a, uh, and a mean-looking biker was walking by me. He said, why did you think he was a mean-looking biker? I could have been wrong. He could have just been dressed as a biker, but he had on the black pants, and he had on black boots, and he had on, like, the leather vest with Harley patches all over it, and he was carrying a motorcycle helmet. So it's possible he wasn't riding a motorcycle, (laughs) but it would have been weird. Long gray hair, long gray beard, rugged-looking dude. And he walks by me at the front, and, uh, and I grab him because he doesn't make eye contact. So I just grabbed him, and I said, hey, what are you riding today? And he looked up at me, and he was crying. And he had his helmet, and he, said, he told me the motorcycle, Harley, something, something. And I said, are you okay? And he said, could you pray for me? I said, I'd love to. What's your name? He told me his name. And I said, how can I pray for you? And he said, I'm a bad guy. I'm a bad guy. And I know you said that like God loves me and wants to use me, but I've done a lot of bad things. We talked for two or three minutes. He said as many cuss words as non-cuss words. Not trying to be offensive, it's just his language. And I just kept saying, calling him by name, saying, listen, like I promise you God loves you. How do you know? He sent his son to die on the cross and he just kept saying, not me. I'm just a bad guy. I've done a lot of bad things. And I just said, all I can tell you is Jesus loves you. And honestly, what you feel today is actually the gateway for connecting with Jesus. Because people who don't believe they're a bad guy, who've done a lot of bad things, they don't even need Jesus. But you're saying without him, I don't have any hope. I prayed over him, tried to get him connected with some people at Westridge, been thinking about him and praying for him all week. But I thought, What a picture. That's a picture of you standing at the front door of your house, but inside your house, listening to someone knocking on the outside. When you start thinking, man, I'm a bad guy. I've done a lot of bad things. If there is a God and he does love people, probably not me. You literally are at the front door of your salvation, and if you would open it, you would see Jesus standing there, And he would say, because you're hopeless and humble, I bring hope in the form of salvation and forgiveness and cleansing and new life. If you're here today and you've never experienced that, I want to introduce you to Jesus and tell you that he loves you. He loves you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to be close to you. He will enter your life. He will use you more than you could have ever imagined. doesn't matter if you were a bad guy, bad girl, done a lot of bad things. doesn't matter. And if you're here and you're a Christian, And you have forgotten that the story of Jesus is not just for American Christians, but it's for us, for the world. And maybe if we would start sharing some of our crumbs instead of eating every last little bit of spiritual bite for ourselves, maybe the world would look more like the kingdom of God if we looked more like the mission of God. Amen. What's God said to your heart today? And what do you need to do to step into obedience? Would you pray with me as we close?
Heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over the room, but hearts are open. What has God said to your heart today and what do you need to do to respond? If you're like my biker friend in Georgia last week, you're not even sure why you walked in church today, but all you know is that for you, lived a pretty bad life, lived a pretty hard life. God might be able to love a lot of people, but not you. You need to understand that is the perfect mindset to begin your walk with Jesus. Because until you get there, you might not even need Jesus. But in that position, you need forgiveness. In that position, you need new life. In that position, you need new direction. And if that's you, whether you're in the room or watching online, then today by faith, which means you can't even understand it all, but you're willing to believe it all, open your heart to the God of the universe who's knocking at the door today. If you've never done that, the Bible says that we believe in our heart. We come to believe it's true that God loves us and he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. And then we confess it with our mouth. We pray and we ask Jesus to save us, to change us. If you've never done that, you can do it today. I'll pray a prayer that you can pray after me. You don't have to pray it out loud. Don't even have to move your lips from your heart to heaven. If you need Jesus today, just pray something like this. Just say, God, I need Jesus. Just repeat after me, God, I need Jesus to treat me the way I need to be treated, not the way I deserve to be treated. I need mercy. Forgive me of my sin. I'm a bad person who's done bad things. Forgive me. Cleanse me of my past. Heal me of my hurts. And lead me into my future. Today, I choose the mercy of Jesus. I choose to make him my savior. I choose to let him lead me spiritually. Today, I want to become a Christian. I want Jesus to have all of me. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer with me, in just a second, I'll let you know how you can tell us. We'd love to pray for you, talk with you, see if there's anything we can do to help you in your spiritual journey. But Christians, just before we close in prayer, Christians, have you kept all the bread to yourself? Or do you still share the crumbs with the world? God's plan of redemption was not just for us. It is meant to be through us. So ask God to strengthen your heart and your hands so that your life might show the world who God is, so that your lips may tell the world who Jesus is. And if there's anything in your life that shows them the opposite, repent, ask God to forgive you and change. If there's anything that comes out of your mouth or gets typed into social media that would make people think the opposite, repent, ask God to forgive you, and then change. Let us be a church lives on mission and God's plan of redemption. God, you are good and we thank you that your plan has always been. When Satan destroyed perfection, you said you would defeat corruption and you've been chasing us ever since. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you for your mercy that you treat us the way we need to be treated, not the way we deserve to be treated. And thank you for your mission. All over again, we accept it. Let us be the hands and feet and mouthpiece of Jesus in our world until the whole world knows who Jesus is. That's our prayer. And God, we ask it today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.